Well, welcome. How's everybody doing? Fantastic. It's good to be inside during the summer, isn't it? Well, my name is Michael O'Fallon, and I will be serving as today's moderator for a very special debate with the primary thesis being, should women be allowed to preach in our Lord's Day worship services? A few important items to mention before we begin this afternoon's discussion. Firstly, I would like to recognize Pastor Dwight McKissick, Ben Cole, and Pastor Tom Askell for their dutiful work to ensure that this scholarly discussion take place. Along with me will be Ryan Dick, chief timekeeper for the event. Yes, many of you know Ryan, he is Dr. R.C. Sproul's grandson. So he'll be, if anything goes wrong, it's his fault. <laughs> now seriously, if, if you could please all take out your phones, please. Like so, please hold them in the air. Everyone? Okay, and if you could please turn your phones off <laughs> during this time. That's the effective way of silencing them. We would ask that there be no video or audio recording during the debate, no flash photography, and please, and this is for in the interest of time, please refrain from applause or any other ambient noise until participants and their time has concluded. The format for today's debate will be the following. Affirmative and negative positions will both deliver 15-minute opening statements. This will be followed by two five-minute rebuttals. We will then have a very short break while we reset the stage. We will then enter a time of dialogue with the affirmative side, Dr. McKissick, asking questions for the first 15 minutes, followed by the negative position asking questions for the next 15 minutes. We will then have another very short break. Then what we will do is have an affirmative closing statement for five minutes and a negative closing statement for five minutes. Now, at this time, if you take a look on many of your seats, you're wondering why there was a white index card there. Well, that is for you. That is for you, the audience, to have questions that you should go ahead and write out. Please signify who the question is for. Pastor McKissick or Pastor Askell. Then at the end of the time that we have for questions and rebuttals, we will then collect those cards and we will have two representatives from both of these gentlemen select the top four questions to ask to them for the end of their time. Well, let me go ahead and introduce our participants. Representing the affirmative position, is Pastor Dwight McKissick. Pastor McKissick is the pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Arlington, Texas. And pastor McKissick's vision is to continue developing a multicultural ministry that will eventually house a K-12 school, retreat, communication center, and ministries to reach and mentor fatherless children. In addition to mentoring church planters, he is the author of several books including Beyond Roots in Search of Blacks in the Bible. Beyond Roots 2, If Anybody Asks You Who I Am, and Moving From Fear to Faith. Pastor McKissick has served as a guest lecturer for schools such as Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he serves as a trustee, Criswell College, University of Minnesota, Emory University, Southern Illinois University, and Wheaton College. Would you please welcome with me Pastor Dwight McKissick.
Representing the negative position will be Pastor Tom Askell. Pastor Tom Askell is currently the senior pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral, Florida, where he has served faithfully for 30 years. Pastor Askell serves as the executive director of Founders Ministries, an organization committed to the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. Pastor Askell edits the Founders Journal, a quarterly theological publication of Founders Ministries, and has written numerous articles and edited and contributed to several books. He regularly preaches and lectures at various conferences throughout the United States and other countries. He also authors the Founders Ministries blog, which has been described as, quote, the web's chief clearinghouse of information on Baptists and the doctrines of grace at founders.org. Would you please welcome with me Pastor Tom Askell. To begin our debate this afternoon with the affirmative position, please welcome Pastor Dwight McKissick. Thank you, Michael O'Fallon. Grateful to be here with Reverend Tom Askell. The question before us today is, does the Bible permit women to preach in our Lord's Day worship service. In the kingdom of God, God values women. Neither complementarianism or egalitarianism are biblical terms, and they fall short of biblical definitions and parameters when it comes to certain gender roles in God's kingdom ministry. Jesus would not label himself complementarian or an egalitarian, therefore neither will I. The word I have coined to label my position on gender roles in ministry is Kingdom Arian. The Appalachian Kingdom Arian focused on Jesus' central teaching on all things as matters pertaining to the Kingdom of God. A Kingdom Arian is one who believes men and women are co-equal under God. Both are valued by God in their essence and function. Both are called into the ministry of disciple-making and preaching the gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. And both do this with the recognition that in the local church, women and men function under God's authority, under the leadership of a kingdom-focused male lead pastor because of God's sovereign purposes and kingdom assignments. My thesis is the Bible reveals that in God's kingdom, God gifts and calls women to preach to whomever he wills, on any day he wills, at any gathering he wills, without limitations with respect to gender. There's an orthodoxy within me that would not permit the sermonic broadcasting of an idea that the Bible will not back and we find Peter quoting Joel says, in the last days God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. The Son of God, the Spirit of God, and the saints of God have sanctioned and commissioned women to preach the gospel wherever and whenever God would open a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. 
the Son of God affirmed women in proclamation ministries. At Jesus' birth, Anna the prophetess spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She did not depart from the temple. Whatever prophesying Anna engaged in occurred at the temple in Jerusalem, and we know she spoke to all, according to the text, men and women. During Jesus' life, many women followed Jesus, funded his ministry, were discipled by him, stood by him at the cross, and came to the tomb very early in the morning on the first day of the week. They brought uh, spices and ornaments to uh, dress a dead man's body when they should have been bringing him breakfast because he told him he's going to get up on the third day. <laughs> <laughs> the male disciples, with the exception of John, were conspicuously absent at the cross and at the tomb. John alone eventually stood by Jesus at the cross, but Jesus rewarded the women for their faith and faithfulness to him by commissioning two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, to deliver the first large day worship sermon in the history of the Christian church. As a matter of fact, if it weren't for the women, we wouldn't have even known about the resurrection. Jesus fully entrusted women to deliver the first day Lord's message to men. I agree with Southern Baptist Pastor Steve Bessner. In the days after the resurrection, as the church was formed, the New Testament is clear. Women were integral. Women were the ones to discover the empty tomb, and therefore they were the first to, he used the word, preach the gospel, and I agree with him. Then I want you to also see the Spirit of God anointed and appointed women to preach the gospel. Under God's authority, without regard to the day of the week, under God appointed male leadership. Women were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost when God poured out his spirit upon the church. God poured out his spirit upon women at Pentecost to proclaim the wonderful works of God, just as he did the men. I've already mentioned Peter having quoted Joel, and it's obviously in that text, it's significant that it is appropriated to establish an authoritative basis which, which underscores the significance of Pentecost for both men and women. The Holy Spirit distributes gifts of the Spirit to each one according to his will to profit all. The Holy Spirit distributed to each one individually as he wills without regard to gender. One of the gifts the Spirit gave without regard to gender was the gift of prophecy. What is prophecy? The common Reformation answer appealed to 1 Corinthians 14.3, the best definition of prophecy. He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Prophecy would also include, according to 1 Corinthians 14.31, teaching and learning, evangelism according to 1 Corinthians 14.24 and 25. The gift of preaching is not listed among the list of spiritual gifts. No one would argue that men and women are gifted by God's spirit to preach. I'm going so fast watching the clock. So where is the gift of preaching among the list of spiritual gifts? I agree with the late Dr. Jack Grape, former professor at Southwestern Seminary, who believes that the gift of prophecy equates to the gift of preaching. The gift of prophecy is mentioned in all three lists of spiritual gifts. Prophecy is the spirit's gift according to Dr. Gray, to preach the message of God with clarity and power, to be God's spokesman to his people, both foretelling and foretelling. 
It is the gift to receive and deliver God's message to people. Prophecy is primarily communicating the gospel with a view towards persuasion. 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul affirms women praying and prophesying with their heads covered. According to the distinguished professor of New Testament of Southwestern Seminary, the late E.R. Ellis, he says, in, in Acts, the prophets reveal two features that are similar to the role of the pneumatics in the Pauline literature. They engage in ministries of teaching and exhortation, and they give Christological exposition of Scripture. Ellis also contends in Acts that the prophets in Acts also expound the Scripture and exhort and strengthen the disciples. Ellis mentioned that the four daughters of Philip might have exercised such functions and even stood out as leaders in the early church. He goes on to cite the patristic remembrance of the daughters of Philip to suggest that their activity was not an occasional phenomenon, but was distinguished and long-remembered ministry. Eusebius also wrote about that. The saints of God in Baptist history have sanctioned women preaching. The Second London Confession of Faith, a particular Baptist, 1689, some of you really love that, it states that the work of preaching the word is not so peculiarly confined to the elders, but that others also gifted and fitted by the Holy Spirit for it and approved and called by the church may and ought to perform it. Elders can give permission or commission anybody they want to in a church to perform the ministry of preaching. Note these and other preachers who did not hold the pastor office preached because they were gifted to do so. Dr. Curtis Freeman, a research professor of theology at uh, Duke School of Divinity, has written a book about uh, seven women who preached in British Baptist history. The book is called A Company of Women Preachers, Baptist Prophetess in 17th Century England. H. Leon Macbeth, great Southern Baptist historian, uh, tells us about the Sandy Creek tradition where there were women deacons, deaconesses, elders, and some women like Martha Stearns Marcia were notable for their fervent preaching and praying in public. Bertha Smith, where you call it, testimony, sharing, uh, whatever you call it. She delivered the Lord's Day message at Bellevue, Memphis, First Baptist Dallas, uh, at First Baptist Atlanta, and retired Oklahoma pastor Paul Burleson said this about Miss Bertha. He's spoken with her at many times at conferences. He says, Miss Bertha did not give a testimony. She did not bring a devotional. She preached the word in power. He goes on to write, the SBC historically has been blessed by women anointed by the Spirit, sharing the word of God. It may not have been mainstream, but it was God from my perspective. Charles Stanley said in the Baptist Press, October uh, 24, 2003, there are a number of women, matter of fact, he was saved under woman evangelist. He said there are a number of women who are preachers who are preparing the, preaching the gospel today, and they are very successful at it, and they are meeting people's needs. You can't tell a woman who is called by God to teach that she cannot teach the word of God. So I think that there's a difference between the authority of a pastor and a Bible teacher. Oh, see Sproul, and so delighted to meet his grandson here, and a message entitled Lecture from the Teaching Series, The Role of Women in the Church, R.C. Spruce said, I see nothing in scripture that precludes a woman from being a preacher. I believe you speaking to a woman can be a preacher in the church on a Sunday morning service. Dr. W.A. Criswell, in his book, The Criswell Guidebook for Pastors, says, 
The Apostle Paul says the woman is to pray and to prophesy, speak out for Christ, he said, in the church. She has a worthy place of honor in the household of God's redeemed. Dr. Criswell permitted his wife, uh, Miss Betty Criswell, to teach men and women four to 600, more than the average Southern Baptist church, half of a man on each Sunday morning over the radio in the area where we are. If God's word is true, we'll see this happening more and more in Southern Baptist churches because he said in the last days it would take place. He's raised up Beth Moore and Priscilla Shire, so many Baptists and evangelical women to do so, and um, God's truth is marching on. Psalm 68:11 says, the Lord gives the word. Great is the house of women who proclaim it in the Hebrew Bible. Dr. Sherry Clouder Sharp, so glad she's uh, here today, who taught the Hebrew alphabet at Southwestern Seminary. She actually said, the Lord gives forth his word, the ones who are proclaiming it, a great host, the uh, P.L. participle in feminine plural, and you could even translate the participle as the women proclaiming it, a great host. Bill Victor raises a great question on this topic. If Phoebe came to your church with a letter from Paul, would you let her read it in church? She's believed to have carried the Roman epistle uh, from Sincrea to Rome. Uh, Paul told the men to assist her at whatever she uh, tells you to do. The early church met on the Lord's day. She no doubt elaborated on the content of that epistle. And would we deny a woman from doing today what Paul allowed women today to do? There is something profoundly wrong with the idea that a woman cannot speak or preach from the pulpit or, or wherever. The pulpit just came along in about the 1500s. We don't need to fight over podium. We need to turn the women loose with the gifts that God have ordained them to even preach to men and women. And that's exactly what Paul instructed Phoebe to do. He instructed the men to insist her in whatever business she has need of you. It is time for the church to let Phoebe be Phoebe, Priscilla be Priscilla, Philip's four daughters conduct their ministry under God's authority, God's ordained male leadership, as he instructed them to do, even preaching in our Lord's day of worship service. And unlike in my church, I'm going to give you back one minute and 41 seconds. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor McKissick. Would you please welcome Tom Askell for his 15 minutes opening statement. So does that mean I have 16 minutes and 46 seconds? <laughs> Unfortunately, no. No, okay. Yes. Well, I want to thank Pastor McKissick for suggesting this debate last month. Uh, he did so in response to my objection to Beth Moore and other women stating on social media that they plan to preach in their churches on the Lord's Day that fell on Mother's Day. Uh, Pastor McKissick has supported these ladies and their plans. I cited Dwight's support of those uh, women and did so in a, a podcast, The Sword and the Trial, that Jared Longshore and I do. Dwight listened to the podcast, and after listening to the podcast, he said, hey, Tom, since you uh, quoted me, which he said you quoted me accurately, I was grateful for that, so I'm sure you wouldn't mind having a debate in Dallas before the Southern Baptist Convention. And so. Here we are because of that, and I appreciate his willingness to do it. We negotiated back and forth trying to figure out the best way to do this, and God's worked to help us to get to this point. 
So the question that we are debating is, should women be allowed to preach in our Lord's Day worship services? I want to make clear what we are not debating, what the debate is not about. It is not about the value of women. It's quite obvious that God created both men and women in his image. Both are therefore worthy of dignity, respect, and honor. The Second London Confession of Faith, which I am so grateful you quoted, uh, says... He created man male and female with reasonable and immortal souls, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 also says in Article 3, man is the special creation of God made in his own image. He created the male and female as the crowning work of his creation. The gift of gender is thus part of the goodness of God's creation. Some have argued at different times and places that women are less valuable than men, but as the husband of a godly wife, father of five godly daughters and one godly daughter-in-law, I can assure you that I am in no danger in buying into that unbiblical opinion. And none of the arguments that I intend to make tonight will fall prey to that wrong-headed thinking. So this debate is not about the value of women. It's also not about primarily the valuable services in God's kingdom that women have performed. It's obvious that God's women have, that women of God have served the kingdom in wonderful ways throughout redemptive history. I mean, in the Old Testament, we have a litany of women who've done this. Miriam, the prophetess, sister of Moses, wrote a song in Scripture that's recorded for us. Deborah, the wonderful judge in Israel. Huldah, who also prophesied. Isaiah's wife did this as well. You come to the New Testament, we have, as has been mentioned, Anna, Philip's four daughters, Mary, Martha, Yodia, Syntyche, Phoebe, Priscilla, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, Rufus's mother, Junia, and any others that I've overlooked simply for the sake of time. These are women that have served wonderfully well, and they have been recorded in the annals of God's Word. Not only that, women have been powerfully used throughout church history to advance the cause of Christ. They continue to be wonderfully instrumental in advancing the gospel in our own day. Our church sent out one of my daughters to Pakistan in order to help minister the word to Pashtun people. We also sent out another one of my daughters to Indonesia to minister, helping get the gospel to Lampungi's people. You don't have to convince me that women play a vital role in the kingdom of God. That's not what this debate's about. It's not about how the Spirit gifts individual believers. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, All Christians are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Christian women are spiritually gifted like men are, and like men, some are unusually gifted in wonderful ways. However, all of God's gifts and the believers who possess them are to be regulated by the Word of God. After all, the Spirit who gives the gifts has given us the Word. Therefore, just as Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we must reject any attempt to exercise a gift in ways that are contrary to God's Word. So what is the debate about? Well, it's about biblical ecclesiology and church polity. The question is, should women be allowed to preach in our Lord's Day worship services? Dwight and I agreed on the form of this question, not because neither he, he or I think that we have the authority or any human court has the authority to make that decision, but rather because as he framed it, we understand the Bible speaks to this issue. 
and our desire is to discern what the Bible actually has to say. We believe, both believe, that the Bible and Bible alone has the final say on this question. Amen. So our real concern is to debate whether or not God has expressed His will on the issue of women preaching in church worship gatherings, and if He has, what that will is. So this puts us in the realm of church order and polity or ecclesiology. Does God care about the structures of His churches? Does He care about what the churches that bear the name of His Son actually do? Well, yes. I mean, yes, yes He does. He's spoken sufficiently clearly about such matters. Baptists have historically believed the, these matters of ecclesiology are so important that we have been willing to suffer and die rather than compromise our convictions on points of ecclesiastical order and practice. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul explains to Timothy why he has written that letter to him. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. God cares how his children conduct themselves in his household. It is his house, so it's his rules that apply. So the question can be put to us in this way. Do God's rules for His house, the church, allow for women to preach in the gathered meetings of the Lord's Day worship? So, the question has nothing to do with the value of women, their usefulness in the kingdom, their spiritual giftedness. Rather, the question before us is whether or not God prescribes or allows women to preach in Lord's Day worship services. In order to get the right answer to that question, we're going to have to focus on two other issues that are at the heart of the debate. Both of these issues are absolutely crucial for a proper answer to the question before us. The first is the role of men and women in God's created order. God created woman from man for man, and Adam was created first. Eve was created to be his helper, suitable to him. God created them with clear distinctions, distinctions that are summarized in the categories of maleness and femaleness. And though there's no difference between men and women before God's law, or as recipients of his saving grace, God designed men and women with distinct traits to fulfill distinct roles. These differences are most clearly defined in marriage in the church. God created Adam to be the representative head of Eve and the rest of the human race. We see this in Romans 5, 12 through 19. Thus, though Eve was the first to disobey God directly by eating the fruit of the forbidden tree, God held Adam responsible. He failed in his role as the leader and head of Eve and the leader and the head of the whole human race. Romans 5.12 says it, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. We teach our children. Adam's headship over Eve was by God's original design and creation. He gave him this role and responsibility before sin entered the world, which means it's right and it's good for both men and women. Sin entered the world through the reversal of this God-designed order and relationship between Adam and Eve. She usurped his responsibility by dealing with the serpent directly, and he abdicated his responsibility by passively standing by and allowing it to happen. Through those sin, both of them sinned, God placed the responsibility for sin entering the world squarely on Adam's shoulders. God's design for the distinct, distinct purposes of maleness and femaleness are especially put on display by a husband's responsibility to be the head of his wife, as taught in Ephesians 5, 
and by local churches being led by qualified called men, as spelled out First Timothy 3, Titus 1. So when God prescribes that the work of pastors, including preaching, preaching God's word to the whole church, should be carried out by qualified men, he's not sliding women at all. He's displaying his wisdom and goodness in the world and in the church he created. That's the first issue. The second one is hermeneutical integrity. The hermeneutical principles that we use to interpret the Bible must seek to understand the plain sense of the words that God has actually inspired. The chief method by which pastors and elders and bishops are to carry out their servant leadership in a church is through the ministry of the word. We see this in Acts 6 when the apostles are serving as elders of the church in Jerusalem. Problem comes up, Peter says it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the word. And so those men were appointed to the problem, solving the problem, so that those leaders could give themselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. In 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says, Let elders who rule well be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And when Paul is nearing the end of his life, what does he say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2? When everything goes horribly in the world, in the church, preach the word. So it's no surprise then that God specifically forbids those who could never lawfully fulfill the role of pastor from taking up the main pastoral responsibility of preaching in the worship gatherings of God's church. There are two texts that state this plainly. There's a lot of them, but I'm going to limit myself to two. 1 Corinthians 14 says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Paul goes on to say in that text that it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In verse 26, before this passage, Paul summarizes what he's just written about gifts given by the Spirit. And he does so in this language. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, which is the word didache, which is teaching, doctrine, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Then in verse 27, he begins to deal with those specific things he's just summarized in reverse order. Listen to it. In verses 27 and 28, he says, deals with tongues and interpretation. If anyone speaks in a tongue, and then let someone interpret. So he deals with those two issues. In verses 29 through 33, he deals with prophecy and how the prophets are to be regulated by the word. And then when we get to 33 to 38, he deals with teaching. And that's where he says the women should keep silent in the churches. So he's explaining what those gifts are for and how they're to be regulated. The key passage is, the second key passage is 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 through 14, where Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. In this passage, Paul gives a prohibition against teaching, women teaching or exercising authority over men. It comes in the midst of his instructions about how believers are to conduct themselves in every place, verse 8 says. This is a reference to either the house churches in Ephesus, all of them, or possibly to all the churches where Paul taught. With the rise of feminist hermeneutics, this passage has been increasingly subjected to critique and reinterpretation in modern times. However, prior to this, there has been a remarkable consensus of its understanding across all of church history. Paul identifies two positive activities and does not permit women to engage 
in, in these activities with respect to men, teaching and exercise in authority. Some see this as one activity that he's forbidding teaching in an authoritative way so they can teach as long as they don't do it, as one has said, in an elder-like way. Yet the word for teach is didaskine. It's usually used in the New Testament to denote accurate teaching of the gospel, the authoritative proclamation of God's will to believers, according to Douglas Moo. In the pastoral epistles, Moo says, teaching always refers to authoritative doctrinal instruction. The second activity that he forbids is exercising authority over men in the church. This word authority, or exercise of authority, is only used here in the New Testament. It's not used many places uh, outside the New Testament in the time of the New Testament. And some have tried to interpret it to mean to assume authority or to lord it over. But in the present tense form, it is never used that way outside of Scripture, anywhere that we can find it. So consider the rationale that Paul gives in verses 13 and 14 to this prohibition. He doesn't say, I forbid this because of the cult of Artemis. He doesn't say because of what's going on in Ephesus. He says, I do this because of creation. The man was created first, and then the woman, and the woman was deceived, and then the man followed in sin. The reason men are to teach, women are not to teach, or exercise authority over men in the church, is because of what happened at creation and the fall. So just as God has created order in the beginning for the whole world, so he has created order in the church. We saw what happened when order was reversed at creation, and we will see similar difficulties when order is reversed in the church. In short, God restricts preaching in our Lord's Day worship services where men and women are present to qualified men. Thank you, Dr. Askell. We will now move into our rebuttal period, and Pastor Dwight McKissick has five minutes for his rebuttal. Can, can I have my minute and 42 seconds back? From, <laughs> from the treasury of merit, from the moderator, yes, you may have one extra minute. You will have six minutes for a rebuttal. Excuse my clock boy to put six minutes in. There we go. Thank you, Michael O'Fallon. There is no single verse in the Bible that has generated more controversy than 1 Timothy 2.12, perhaps other than Genesis 9.27. Both of those verses have been used in a <coughs> restrictive way, one to hold down uh, African-Americans or Africans in Genesis 9.27, and this verse has been totally misused to restrict and bind women. And uh, church has been wrong on women suffrage and been wrong. Uh, even the Southern Baptist Convention has served in the early 70s on abortion. Uh, they voted in essence to approve it. They've been wrong about Jim Crow. So the church has missed it on a lot of things and they have missed it also <coughs> on this notion that a woman cannot stand and preach. Dr. Maurice Pugh is correct in his assessment as to why there is no, uh, why there is such a great controversy around 1 Timothy 2.12. The crux of the controversy, some would say, take it as written. That's what my dear friend Tom has said. Others would say, go behind what is written. Uh, Paul mentioned Ephesus and Ephesians 1.3 is we, we don't treat other, we don't treat 1 Timothy 2.9 said, one became wear pearls or braids 
like we treat 1 Timothy uh, 2.12. That's just a very consistent in how we interpret that. And, and Dr. Pewitt also says, uh, others then would say cross-reference scripture. Martin Luther said the best interpreter of scripture is scripture. Paul taught that women in the kingdom were the model of the pattern of leadership God set forth in creation, whereby leadership is exhibited by male and female, both being given dominion. The male is given leadership responsibilities in the partnership, and the woman is the follower. The Temple of Artemis at Ephesus had a woman at the center, and men were the followers. Paul said, you've turned creation on its head. This was a reversal of the creation model's practice at uh, the Temple of Artemis. Paul writes that he does in 1 Timothy 2.12. He writes as a corrective to say women should not swap roles with the man. Women can preach on the Lord's Day of Worship if they follow leadership as did Huldah and Phoebe and 1 Corinthians 11, five New Testament prophetess and not rebel against leadership as did Eve and Jezebel in Revelations uh, chapter two. So I've already mentioned this inconsistent how we interpret it. We just applied the same hermeneutical principles to 1 Timothy 2.12 that we applied to 1 Peter 2.9. This debate would already be over with. I also want to point out there's a misunderstanding and misapplication of the text related to silence that women applied to preaching and speaking. We really don't mean that. We're, same verse we quote, I, I suffer no, not a woman not to teach. That same verse says be silent, but we don't say be silent. Matter of fact, Fanny Crosby, we, she teach us theology to God be the glory. We sing us her song. We let the women sing. We let the women do a, a whole lot of things. We don't apply that same specific literal application to the silent passages as we do, I suffer a woman not to teach. Silence does not mean silence, as in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, the structure for silence must be taken in the context of the situation. And it, I think it was referring to the fact that in Roman culture, uh, women by law couldn't learn. He said, learn before you speak. I think it had something to do with how uh, tongues being interpreted become prophecy and somebody had to call the final shot with that, uh, what's spoken being, uh, would it be a binding on the congregation? He keeps in principle the order of creation where men were uh, ruling, but clearly and if, if he let a woman speak in 1 Corinthians 11, 5, he wouldn't tell them to be silent in 1 Corinthians 14. There is failure to understand the historical context of Paul's instructions when he referenced teach and to have authority. Um, 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 15, applying the creation story to Eve, but to not, not apply it to Adam is false. There is a serious theological contradiction in telling a woman when she comes to faith in Christ, her personal sins are forgiven, but she must continue to be punished for the sin of Adam. And that's what hypercomplementarianism does. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, but yet we go back and impose what took place with Eve on today's women. That's a theological disorder of the highest order. The creation story is meant to protect women, not to oppress them. Paul mentions Adam's creation prior to Eve, not to argue that women are to be beneath them or the heel of men, but that women are to be covered and protected by men. It was Paul and Phoebe working together, Priscilla and Aquila working uh, together. God has always used men and women together in the kingdom, in kingdom advancement. The scripture taught that when God 
when God's order got perverted, women were the ones who were deceived. That meant that men should help them learn in silence. Learn before you speak. It was not an uh, eternal restriction for them never to speak. Too many people are overlooking hermeneutics 101. It demands that we interpret scripture with scripture. This is the only doctrine that we, we build off one verse. Uh, not the Trinity, not Christology, you, you, pneumatology, you, you name any other doctrine that has a body of work, a body of verse. This is the only doctrine, sort of like we did Genesis 9, 27. We took that one verse, cursed be Canaan, and for thousands Time. of years we treated people brutally. In the name of God. We're doing the same thing with 1 Timothy 2.12. Thank you, Pastor McKissick. Pastor Askell now has five minutes for his rebuttal. Well, first of all, I would like to... Uh, say that we ought to use biblical definitions for biblical words. So if we're going to use prophecy, shouldn't we let the Bible define prophecy? The Bible does define prophecy for us. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Well, what does that mean? Well, you go back to chapter 4, you see exactly what it means, because God defines prophecy. You shall speak to Aaron and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and his mouth, and he, you will, and will teach both of you what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. He shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Well, that's a pretty good biblical definition of prophecy. So prophecy is not the exposition of Scripture. Prophecy is not the same thing identical with preaching as the Apostle Paul admonished Timothy to do. Prophecy has at least some degree of passivity about it because we're saying that God has revealed His Word according to this biblical definition, the very words that He intends to be prophetically spoken. And so it is a category error to take prophecy that was going on in the first century by men and women and saying that that therefore applies to preaching in the New Testament churches in the thesis before us on the Lord's Day. Uh, my brother pointed out how prominent women were in Jesus' ministry, and that's certainly true in the Old Testament as well, but there were no women priests in the Old Testament in Israel, nor were there any women apostles that our Lord chose to be those who would carry on the work that he gave them to do. He mentioned R.C. Sproul in his views. Well, you probably didn't hear, but about a little over a year ago, Sproul changed his views on that, and baptism as well. He's now a Baptist. Because <laughs> you, you, yeah. But no, he did develop his views. Listen to what Chris Larson says, who's the head of Ligonier Ministries. He said, well, he continued to develop over the course of his lifetime. In Table Talk magazine in 2009, when he, R.C. Sproul was the executive director, they published an article called Female Authority, which says this, when Paul says in today's passage, what he says is that women are barred from preaching and teaching and worship, not from every kind of speaking. So we all grow, and R.C. Sproul grew in his awareness and understanding of what the Scripture has to say on these issues. With regard to the interpretation of the verses, I would argue that we're not 
hinging our position on one verse. Certainly, this verse is clear, and it shouldn't be subject to the kind of debate that it is, but nevertheless, there are far more verses in 1 Timothy 2.12. I've referenced that in a flyover earlier, but let me address the, the questions that Dwight rose, arose, raised about this. In verse 9, likewise, he says that women should adorn themselves not just without braided hair and golden pearls and costly attire, but listen to the whole verse, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. What's Paul concerned about? He's concerned about the inner life. He's concerned about how Christian women ought to exude beauty from within and not externally. We don't ignore that verse. We teach that verse today. There were cultural implications, no doubt, as to what constituted outward ostentatious uh, displays for dress. Well, we have that today as well. And you know it when you see it, right? And Christian women are not to do that. We don't neglect this verse. What I think has to be addressed, though, is why in the world Paul would appeal to creation and to the fall if he's only talking about something that was a problem in that one place? That's the question that I have not heard adequately answered, at least not satisfactorily to me, as I've tried to read through the literature, try to listen to my brothers and sisters on the other side of this. Why in the world did Paul simply not say, I don't, forbid, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over men because there's a lot of craziness going on here in Ephesus with the Artemis cult. And there were educated women in the first century. So not all women were untaught. And if the fact that Paul uses that as a reason to silence all women, then maybe Paul is a misogynist. Why would he use the fact of some not being taught to silence all? So I think that we need to do better exegesis of the actual words we have in the Bible to get to this question. Time. Thank you, Pastor Askell. Would you please thank these gentlemen with me for an excellent beginning to this debate. Okay, in this next series, we'll begin with 15 minutes of questions from the affirmative side for the negative side, starting with Pastor McKissick. Thank you. I don't know that I have 15 minutes worth of questions, but I... Fine with me. <laughs> I'm sure everybody's ready to go eat, too. I, I have a few. So I guess question number one, and maybe the answer is in how you define prophecy, mm. but uh, correlate or contrast 1 Timothy 2.12, that you see as a strict command for women not to address or teach a local congregation with First uh, Corinthians 11.5, where obviously the same Paul allowed it and the same Paul in Romans 16, that tell, I'm sending you a woman to tell you some things. And since she delivered the Roman epistle, for her not to reference it would be really a stretch for me. So kind of how do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, I'm just, I want to look at the exact okay. verses. Do you have those you want to First uh, Timothy 2.12, you know, I suffer a woman not to teach. That verse, First okay. Corinthians 11.5, about women can pray and prophesy with their head covered. St. Paul, Romans 16.1 and 2, 
Um, Y'all receive Phoebe. Receive her as mm -hmm. a sister of the Lord. And she's coming to handle some business and share some things with you. How do you, to me, you can't make those texts fit. Okay. The strict a woman cannot address a Lord's Day worship. All right. Let me read Romans 16, 1 and 2. Maybe that'll help. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sacria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And I would say amen to all that, but I don't think it has anything to do with teaching a congregation on the Lord's Day uh, doctrinally. Okay, that's, that's a thought, but clearly she was empowered to do more than go bake cookies and those no. kinds of ministries. He, he, she was operating in a very serious role. But I don't well, think baking cookies is a bad thing for anybody to do. Well, obviously I like <laughs> cookies. <laughs> but there's a diversity of things women can do just as men, and sometimes I think we relegate them to, we limit them right. in a lot of churches to things such as that. Sure. Um, Jezebel in Revelations, I mean, she's, Jesus says she's a, you know, she calleth herself a prophetess, and clearly she taught false doctrine, and clearly she was rebuked for false doctrine, just as men often are, and that was judgment and punishment. But I think what we overlook is the angel of the house, a male pastor who has this woman functioning. I think the word teaching is used in that text, teaching at a gathered worship service, which meant this was no horrible idea to the New Testament church for a woman to stand and teach. And Jesus had an opportunity there to rebuke the angel for allowing a woman to stand before a congregation and teach. No, he addressed the content of her message, not the container. You know, uh, what verse is it? I think it's Revelation 2, 18 through 23, okay, perhaps. Yeah, um, well, one thing I would say is, you know, Jesus said to his disciples, I have many things to say to you, but you're not able to hear them. So he didn't always say everything that he could have said in every situation. And the fact that this woman was doing what she was doing here uh, in the church is a, a, a horrible thing because of what she was teaching. And he rebukes that and tells them to repent of that. So um, the, I'm not overly worried that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my service to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols, wasn't called out because she was doing it as a woman. You know, I think the fact that this is going on at all is sufficient for uh, anyone to say this has got to stop no matter who's doing it. You, say, uh, you said God was displaying his goodness, it's a paraphrase, so if I get a little bit wrong, correct me, by denying women an opportunity to exercise their, their gifts when men are present. Um, would Charles Stanley get saved in a worship service with a woman preaching? God really would have been denying his goodness to the woman by restricting her mm. from doing God really would have been denying his goodness to uh, Mrs. Criswell for teaching those, building them up in the faith. I used to often listen to her on a Sunday morning. Uh, Dr. Patterson himself allowed her to go to the Concord Church in Dallas on a Sunday morning and deliver, I don't know what they call it, but nobody <laughs> preached that day. Yeah. God was denying his goodness to women, to Beth Moore is reaching people in phenomenal ways all over the world. But you're saying that would be God denying? That seems like that's turning common sense on his head. 
Yeah, well, I, I understand that it does feel that way. Um, but my response is that all of those things are experiences. And we just have to be really careful not to let experience become more important to us than what the Word actually says. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to get on some thin ice here, because, but I'm going to apply it to myself because I do this regularly. Do I, I, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm the worst guy in the world to preach, and I don't know what to say and how to preach, but God's called me to preach. I know and that I, feeling. Okay, here's how I encourage myself. I said, well, God spoke through Balaam's donkey. Maybe he can speak through me, you know, okay? So uh, I'm not, not, don't anybody quote me saying I'm calling all these people you just cited Balaam's donkey. I'm not doing that. I mean, God does that. God does things that are wonderful, but those things that we have in our experiences should not be the final authority as to how we live in the church. We, we have a book and our, ju- our, our determination is to try to understand, make good judgments from this book as to what God requires. So that's what, I wouldn't deny those experiences, say praise God for them, but when I'm figuring out how the church is to operate, I want to come back to the book. I just want, want to go on record. I firm it. I've enjoyed this the conversation and I'm privileged to be here. I don't affirm that particular, and I don't think you meant any harm you're targeting, but the whole notion, I think, of in this conversation of women preachers and Balaam's donkey, that <laughs> I find I, that. I tried a, really hard not to do that. But, well, uh, that's, 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 that's really sort of difficult for me to. I'll, so I'll try to apply it to myself, and I, I certainly meant it in no ill way. It was well, no one last question, one last question. There are many churches, African-American churches, particularly in the South, and, and, uh, the, the East Coast, West Coast, women preachers is just a common thing in churches. It's not, a lot of Southern churches and Midwestern black churches still will not allow a woman to preach on the Lord's Day of Worship. Mm-hmm. However, Nana Helen Burroughs, who worked great with Southern Baptists and uh, phenomenal uh, black Baptist woman in the maybe 1920s through, I think her impact goes up through the 60s. Uh, she established something called Women's Day. And it's not uncommon at all, at least once a year. The two churches I grew up in as a boy did not allow women to preach on a regular, and they would even call it, but once a year, hmm. they would designate what they call Women's Day, and a woman could take over the preaching hour. Yeah. I guess my question to you would be, have, having grown up seeing that model, it wasn't controversial. Mm-hmm. Women loved it. They felt affirmed and validated and valued. They get a great speaker. Um, and I would ask myself, even as a kid growing up, why would you allow this once a year, and especially those that were very good and not allow it two, three, four, five other times. Yeah. But I, I dare not ask the question because I was under authority. <laughs> but you would see that as in violation of First Timothy 2.12, the, the, the scripture. Yes. Okay. I see it as following in the model of Phoebe, 1 Corinthians 11.5, the prophecy in Acts 2.17. Uh, and I'm so grateful to have grown up in that tradition and to see the impact hmm. of that. And I find it interesting that we rarely call out the men who have preached Beth Moore. We were rarely, we wouldn't criticize Adrian Rogers or 
W.A. Criswell for them allowing women to perform wherever they let them perform with the co-ed audience. But we will target a Beth Moore. My final question to Stable would be, just like uh, conservative Christianity and the conservative Southern Baptist Christianity has been really radically wrong on several issues. There was hyper-complementarianism that says a woman cannot teach Hebrew. At Dallas Theological Seminary, that holds inerrancy. Women have been teaching Hebrew for years. They have co-ed classes. I, with women taking preaching, I sat in Dr. Raymond Spencer's preaching class at Southwest, and I was a student when he announced that not only did he affirm women preachers, not women pastors, he embraced the Baptist faith and message, but he introduced a woman to preaching class that day, and I never will forget this statement. He died a year or so thereafter. He said he would be glad to have this conversation with the trustee board at Southern Baptist Seminary, almost as if he anticipated it. I sat there so proud of him, because if you interpret scripture as he does and, and I do, it is oppressive and abusive and no less sinful to deny that woman that opportunity. And Dallas is beginning to shift, DTS, mm -hmm. with co-ed classes, with uh, professors affirming soft complementarianism. So this hard line complementarity, and I appreciate you and Mike and others, some were taken to extreme calling it functional egalitarianism, uh, that was just, that just was uh, mislabeling and not being honest. So I really appreciate uh, you all not taking my position and, and painting it to be something that it's not. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if anything I've argued is true today, how we're treating women, how Sherry Clowder was treated, how certain women have been treated in classes at, at Southwestern is no less sinful than how Southern Baptists treated blacks for many years mm -hmm. when they made them sit outside classroom doors and go to school at night in 1945. If Dallas Theologic, who is just as conservative in the narratives, can be open-minded to scripture and allow women a much more expressive uh, uh, practice within evangelicalism, I don't, I'm here, I'm here as a prophet. To say Southern Baptists need to be very careful. The judgment of God may be upon us because I see our attitude identical to how Southern Baptists for years treated blacks. That's all I got to say. Yeah. My last so do you, you want me to say anything? Okay, yeah. Um, well, you mentioned a lot of things in there, Dwight, and, and certainly all the horrible treatment of women and the way uh, some of the women that you mentioned or all the women you mentioned, I don't know all of the situations, but every time it's been mistreatment of women, that's horrific. And that's an important debate for us to have. And you, know, we need, we're, you and I would agree completely on that. We might disagree on what the solutions are or what the causes or background is to that. But nevertheless, yeah, I abominate all of that and all of us should. But you, know, you yourself said it so well that conservative churches have been wrong about a lot of things. And you know, that's true. So that's why we need to not rely upon our experiences or our judgments, but we've just got to be so rigorously submissive to the word and let the, let the word lead us wherever it w will, regardless 
And, you know, I know you're trying to do that. I'm trying to do that as well. And so these types of conversations, I think, are valuable. I think of the once-a-year deal, like you, you know. Man, I wish you'd ask the question, you know, <laughs> see what the answer would have been when you were a kid. Because once a year in many churches today, there's a God and country service, you know. And the American flag's flown and Lee Greenwood's song sung, and it's hokey, you know. But mm -hmm. it, it's done in a Lord's Day worship service. And I say, that's not right. The Bible ought to regulate what happens every one of the Lord's days, you know, regardless of whatever else is on the calendar. So I don't see those things at odds, and I wouldn't see the, the fact that you know, we've been, our churches have been wrong about things as a, a reason to, to jettison uh, an exegetical argument from Scripture, and I'm not suggesting you do that, but I do think this is where we've got to make our case. You know, we've got to deal with the actual words that God has inspired and do the best work we can. And, and good people disagree, obviously, or we wouldn't be having this debate. And you've cited a lot of guys and, and their scholars that have looked at these things and come up with different uh, understanding of them. But we ought to use them to try to help us understand what does God say? Has God spoken? And where we get that, that's where I want to be. Uh, I know that's where you want to be, but that's what's governed me. I promise this is the last question. I was in Atlanta last night, and I won't go through the whole day of frustration and flights. A lot of us have had those. But it ended up with, I don't know if they're here today, two Southern Baptist pastors in the greater Dallas area. Uh, we ended up riding together from Atlanta to Birmingham. And they both were shocked to know for many, many years this convention would not even allow a woman to vote. I'm proud it was an Arkansas governor's wife who lobbied for that change. This convention has never have acknowledged how wrong and sinful that was to not allow them to vote at meetings, but it's that same mindset that they were fighting over the pulpit today. I wish, because I, we, I think we're, we're far apart maybe in what we practice, but in, in terms of being sincere about how we view scripture, I wish this convention would seriously though, uh, whether the women are asking for it or not, just the mere fact we did that. And if we could apologize for blacks for the serious treatment that's taking place there, we really owe women apology for not just denying the vote, but in other ways. This whole sexual abuse thing, I think, is the judgment of God on Southern Baptist. Because once you devalue a woman to say she cannot preach on the Lord's Day, and I think there's much biblical support for that, you're telling men it's okay to abuse her like as uh, document. No, that's not true. What, one minute to, to answer, and then we'll move on to the other. Yeah, bro brother, I just think that's, right. a, that's not right. You know, that's not right. Anybody who abuses women, I don't care how many documents they sign saying that they believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, they're liars. Okay? They do not believe God's Word. They're not practicing God's Word. And that's certainly true in all of the other scenarios that you cited as well. Yeah, you do, we all you're right. In egalitarianism, you see a lot of abuse, too. I would agree oh, yeah, with that. But, I mean, it's, we all have blind spots. And so... We ought to be humble in trying to understand the scripture and welcome differing positions to, to refine our thinking. Uh, but anybody who is following what the word says is not going to abuse women, is going to protect women. And any woman who's following this isn't going to feel oppressed by doing what the Bible says. They're going to rejoice in that. Okay, we are going to move on to the next section then. It will be the negative <laughs> side, which will be Pastor Askell, then asking questions of Dwight McKissick. Man, I hate I was so tough. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> no, I, Dwight, here's a question I've been wanting to ask you because I do think, okay. I think I understand your position. Why would you allow a woman to preach 
engage in the function of pastoral ministry while denying her, if I understand you right, the uh, role of being a pastor in the church. Is that, you, you don't allow women to be pastor in the church, right? Several things. I, I think pastoring is a gift. I don't believe uh, that I don't have any quote-unquote women pastors on my staff, but I think many function in uh, shepherding and leading and caring and carrying out. If you teach, if a woman teaches Sunday school class, there's a, a lot of element of pastoring if you're teaching fifth graders. So uh, that's number one. Uh, I'm like Charles Stanley. I separate the authority of the office of pastor from the function of preaching. I'm like the 1689 confession that believe a body of elders can designate whoever they think is fit, the word is used in that text, mm. uh, gifted to preach, to uh, allow them to do so. So I, uh, I invite a lot of preachers uh, to my church. None of them come in as a pastor, though. Mm -hmm. Okay, but um, would you say Matter of fact, I'd, I'd, I'd have you to come if you come. But I'd, I'd be there tomorrow. <laughs> just, but just don't, preach, just don't preach Reformed theology. You'll be all right. Preach uh, something else. All right. <laughs> Everything else you could preach. You, you, just, you just took the Bible away from me. Uh, what am I going to do, brother? <laughs> well, uh, that's all, maybe we could debate that next time. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so the main, would you say that as a pastor of the church, I feel this way, I say this all the time, my main responsibility as pastor is to preach the word. So that's the primary Well, if you go to Acts 6, prayer, which a lot of us sure. fail in, but right. prayer first and then the preaching of the word. But yes. it's certainly high. I would definitely agree with that, yes. Okay, so if I understand you right, then women have biblical warrant to engage in that activity in the church, the preaching of the word. You wouldn't put any Absol limitations as to what they could preach. Well, everybody coming up, just like I gave you limitations. Right, right, but I mean, it's, it's going to have to be Everybody to preach in Anybody, I wouldn't intentionally go into anybody's pulpit. Matter of fact, I read Paige Patterson's commentary on 1 Corinthians 14 before I preached at Southwestern. I dare anybody to read that and say it doesn't affirm the very sermon I preached there. Yeah. Well, I'm, so I, I get so that. I so, yeah, within, so you always come under the authority within, of whatever sure, you preach. Within the confessional boundaries of whatever set there, but there's no limitations as taking the text and preaching the text. So you wouldn't mind a woman doing that once a month? Well, I, I got to keep my job. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, but assume uh, they will continue to pay you in your job. Would, uh, would it be okay for a woman to do that once a month? Hypothetical question. I, I mean, it's just something I haven't had to process right. process at that level. But and all the preachers at our church, they submit sermons to a senior uh, pastor on my staff. He reviews their sermons, sure, and he'll tell them if it's off base or right. But everybody preaches there comes under. Yeah. Authority. Do they do that to your sermons? Mm, generally not, but not. if okay. they find some elements. So this uh, is just other folks that come in. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Well, I'm just, my, my question is this. So if okay. They will hold me accountable if, they hear, they, if they've heard me say something they find inappropriate. They'll call you on it. Oh, yeah, they, they've done that several times. Well, praise God for that, huh? Right? <laughs> it's good to have faithful elders, isn't it? Uh, so if, if it's okay for a woman to preach, you know, periodically on the Lord's Day, my, my question is, okay, why not have a woman preach every Lord's Day in a church? Would that be an unhealthy thing? Like, that's the very thing he was fighting at Artemis. He was saying they have turned the creation order on his head by letting, worshiping a woman over there and having women dominate 
and do all the speaking. Of course, there wasn't a, a biblio-christocentric church either. He said, we're not going to follow that pattern over here. But to say we're not going to have women dominating and preaching over here is not to say she cannot ever. Well, but, but if she can do it once, why can't she do it all the time? Because it's not necessary. Well, well, men are gifted too. Men are called too. The, 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 if the pastor is to be a male, yeah. then if she preaches 52 Sundays, when does he preach? So why, why is a pastor to be a male? Where do you get that? I, I, I get it from 1 Timothy 3. The I, husband of one wife. And yeah, and I get it from the creation order in terms of leadership. Okay, so the, so the creation leadership, that brings me to the next question. In 1 Timothy 2, uh, 12, 13, and 14. Why do you think Paul appeals to creation and to the fall in order to, to give the reason why he doesn't let not just one woman preach or teach, but women in general? Well, there are multiple ways, interpretations, and I'm reading books from some evangelical scholars who uh -huh. don't view it that way. But uh, I think Paul is directly addressing what is it? If Ephesus is mentioned in, He's in Ephesus, yeah. verse 3 of First uh, Timothy 1, he, as you know, Christianity was new, it was small, it was not overly influential, mm -hmm. but the, uh, worshiping Diana and the cut temple at Ottawa, it was huge, it, therefore influential. And therefore women wore all this costly apparel, they could afford it. Short. But if you're evangelizing, you can't afford, uh, you know, this costly clothing, as you mentioned, it's not, it wasn't healthy, what was happening there. Mm -hmm. So everything he said in 1 Timothy uh, 2 is a direct response to what was going on in Ephesus with the cult. So my question temple. would be, how do you know that? I know that, but same way we, we were taught biblical backgrounds, historical, mm -hmm. right. grammatical understanding. Again, when we get to this verse, we won't treat it as verse 9. I, I know that based on how we treat similar passages. Right. It seems to me that's a dangerous hermeneutic, though, that if we allow something outside of the Scripture to determine the meaning of Scripture. I agree with you. Yeah. Okay. And that's why we got all these other verses <laughs> that Paul spoke right. that allows a woman to do it. But, you know, I just read S.M. Ball's research on this, and he's, he's done the most extensive research on first century Ephesus, and he says that the idea that the Artemis cult was influential in the culture of the city of Ephesus is bogus because it was a typical Greek Roman Hellenic city that was patriarchal in nature. And so if that's true, then that raises questions. Yeah. But, but, but yeah, if you want to throw scholars on the table, N.T. Wright, Scott McKnight, a lot of people would contradict what he says. That's one thing about I've discovered in Christianity. You can always find two people. Yes, which means we ought to stick with the text, you know. Yeah. We, we and, and that's exactly what I'm doing. That's, that's why I quoted 1 Corinthians 11, 5. That's the reason I quoted yeah. Romans 16, 1 and 2. That's the reason I quoted Acts 2, 2, 17. That's the reason I quoted the very Paul who said these things. Right. To understand right. what Paul meant here, you have to stick with the text. What did he mean in these other places? Yeah. I, get, I get that. What, do you, do you, I mean, I'm thinking it would have been so easy for Paul to say, I don't uh, allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man because this Artemis cult has so impacted women in the culture and the ladies coming out of that into the church are bringing all their baggage with them. Well, let's go back to what you said about Jesus and Jezebel. You said yeah. Jesus didn't say it all. That's right. So just like Paul didn't make that statement about the cause of Artemis, yeah. Jesus didn't rebuke this woman 
because she's a woman. That's right. But he, so that was implicit permission for her to do it as long as she was doing it the right way. Well, but to but, use your logic and hermeneutic. Well, I'm not quite sure that's accurate because okay. Paul does give a reason. Paul does give a reason. And creation. Yeah, creation. Yeah, and which I agree. Creation means male is in charge. Right. And so if a woman, a, but a woman teaching on a given Sunday does not overturn that creation order. Artemis overturned it. He said, you cannot do that over here. All right. Okay. Um, yeah, what, so your, your reasons for not allowing a woman to be a pastor have to do with the limitation of pastoral role to men. So that's what you're, you're seeing in 1 Timothy 3. Is that right? I want to make sure I'm clear on that. Yes. Now, again, we, we, I've, I've been on church staff where if you're a woman, you're a director. If you're a man, you're a pastor. Mm -hmm. I've been on, uh, you know, and I ran into that. I was doing the same thing. If I had a woman in his role, I called her director. If I had a man in his role, he became a pastor. And mm -hmm. it hit me. This is just inconsistent. This stuff, they even get down to economics. The, the men on my staff could claim a housing allowance. Mm -hmm. The women could not. Again, we're, we're dealing with the same kind of sin yeah. against women that we have practiced against other people. So I ended up just calling them all ministers because we're all called a minister. So I guess I demoted the men from being pastors, made them ministers, and maybe I elevated the women by making them ministers. Yeah. But I think it's, it can be some, I don't think it's but one Moses, one, one leader of a church. So as long our church constitution requires that the senior pastor, the leader be a male. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, Function determines what, whether you're a pastor or not, mm -hmm. not your title. Yeah. So I don't have a, I mean, I'm, I'm, a church that referred to a woman as pastor Christian education, pastor of youth, pastor worship, pastor whatever, I, I really, I, it's not, as long as the man is a pastor, I'm okay. So like a senior pastor would need yes, to Yes, as long as the man is a senior pastor, if whether it, you know, if, if people don't staff a label, it's, it's a gift. They have to have the gift of pastor to do their jobs well. But you don't think God gives the gift of senior pastor to women? I don't believe he calls them or assigns them to that. Okay. All right. Because of the husband and one wife passage? Basically. That and the creation, creation. order. Okay, yeah, that's, yeah, well, that's, I wasn't expecting that, so this is helpful to me. Um, so with the creation order, I think that's an important point that often gets lost in this debate and a lot of other debates. In fact, I think that Genesis 1-1 may be the most overlooked and vitally important verse in all the world right now because this is God's world and he has ordered it. And so I think when we get in line with his order that there's not uh, any protest, we're not going to feel oppressed. Whatever God has prescribed is going to be right and good for us. And so the question is, oh, how do we understand what he has prescribed. So how does the creation order work in the realm of church leadership? Does it work, in, do you see it working in any other way other than who uh, exercises authority or has authority? I, you, I forget which words you used earlier. That it, you see it that way because God created man first and there's a role, there's a order. Yeah, here. but you mentioned Halder in your presentation. Uh, I think it was Scott McKnight says, who was it, Jeremiah? It was four prophets who've written books in the Bible that were available to King Josiah when he called Huldah mm -hmm. to speak for God right. there. 
you're saying she, she was a prophet, she could speak, but just not on the Lord's day. That's your point. No, I'm saying prophecy is fundamentally different than what I'm envisioning when we're talking about preaching because of that definition. Earl Ellis taught a lot of people wrong. Dr. Jack Gray taught There's a lot of false, if prophecy is, is and I did it, Break says he's a cessationist, so it doesn't uh, <laughs> exist. But uh, if prophecy is what it says in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, I believe a woman could do that on any day of the week and do it on Sunday morning and do it as Holder yeah. did it. What do you think about that, uh, that definition in Exodus where, Paul, uh, where God tells Moses that he's going to make him like God to Aaron and Aaron will be his prophet and he will put his words in Aaron's mouth and Aaron will speak his words. That to me seems like the clearest definition of prophecy from the Bible that we have. Is that I don't disagree with anything you just said, I don't play that against 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 3. I don't see a country, I'm not seeing the distinction, maybe I'm slow. Well, here's what I'm saying. Why, because, how that differs. No, 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 I, but, but yeah, let me go ahead and I didn't, I assumed what I shouldn't assume because these thoughts are going on in my head, not yours. But, but the first time I ever heard that definition though, I mean, that's, is that unique to you? The, the I quote? wish it was, but it's not. Okay. No, I, I got that from old Palmer Robertson, I think, years ago, but okay. uh, final word, I believe, is where he, he writes that. But those words then become the, those are the inspired words of God. So when the prophets were speaking prophetically, they were speaking the very words of God. It was as, as inspired of it as any letter that Paul wrote that's in the New Testament. So what were they speaking in 1 Corinthians 14, 3? Well, they were speaking prophecy. They were speaking the, the, the very words of God. So there was a Your passivity. point is it was authoritative. What, what is your point? It, my point is that there was a passivity to them. Like you and I have to sit down and look at the text and struggle and sweat and try to understand what it means and then proclaim it. But when God came upon someone to cause them to prophesy, he, it was like he puts his words in them and they become his mouthpiece. That's the, my understanding of that. Have, have you not prepared a message and just sense God, it doesn't equate to scripture. Right, right, right. But right. God inspiring you, God. Oh, yeah. I, think I prayed for a sermon for like Sunday. That. I meant to get here earlier, but I didn't get to bed at 3 because I wanted to hear Dr. Nettles. And, or it's, uh, I'm going to preach on me on Sunday. Yeah. And that's why, I, uh, you know, now, so that wasn't going to be God. That was going to be Strahan and Nettles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you made the distinction. So, so now I got to figure out, I got to give me a sermon. <laughs> but there have been times, many times, when I'm preparing a message. Yeah. And I believe God gave me. Sure the words, the, the thesis, the, the direction of that yeah. message, but I wouldn't dare suggest it anyway. It's the same thing as scripture. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, that's my, def that's my understanding of prophecy and how I understand prophecy to work, so. Okay. Okay, with our first five minute close, we have Dr. McKissick. He has five minutes for his closing statement. I'm going to give you back at least two of these. My closing statement would essentially be, if we could send Lottie Moon, many other female missionaries to China, and Africa, and other places, organize churches, plant churches, disciple men, preach the men. They function in every Exactly everything a pastor would do in pastoral care, setting doctor parameters that a man would do. You just don't call it pastoring or preaching. But Lottie Moon, quoted by Steve Bessner, she made it very clear. She preached 
to men and women. What is the big problem? And don't you see the inconsistency? In our convention, we'll send a woman to do in foreign country, Asia and Africa, South America, what they will not allow a woman to do here. That's duplicity. That's hypocrisy. That's sin. And I believe God is correcting this disorder. And the word of God is straightening itself out, even if it has to straighten itself out around our necks. If Psalm 6811 is right, there's going to be a great host of women coming preaching. If Acts 217 is right, I believe we're living in the last of the last days and it started at Pentecost, there will be a great number of women who will be preaching. And when we allow it overseas, and we do, everybody here knows that. We allow it, it happens all the time. But don't allow it here. Practically what we're saying, it's all right for a woman to preach to people of color around the world, they just can't preach to white men over here. That's what we're saying. Dr. Askell, you have five minutes for your closing statement. Well, I, wonder, I want to reiterate my gratitude and esteem for Dwight McKissick and appreciate uh, having the conversation. We, we were just saying that we need to have more conversations like this and a willingness to open the Bible together and see what it has to say. There's nothing that I've heard today from him that's caused me to lose any uh, esteem or respect for you. And I look forward to having further opportunities to engage with you, fellowship with you. Obviously, we disagree on what the Word teaches about women preaching on the Lord's Day gatherings of Christ's churches, but that's why we had this debate. The question that we've considered can be restated like this. Has God really said that women must not teach or exercise authority over men in the church? This is nothing more than the echoes of Eden. The devil is a wicked and wily enemy, but his strategy for ensnaring God's people is remarkably uncreative. We have seen this play before. If the devil can get God's people to doubt God's word, then he can lead us astray. It worked in Eden. The consequences were disastrous. If it works in our churches today, we should expect similar disaster. The question of whether or not a church can have women preachers is not as important as the questions related to the gospel or the person of Christ or the Trinity. And I refuse to say that anyone who disagrees on this issue for me is not a brother or a sister in the Lord. That doesn't disqualify anyone from knowing Christ. But this issue is not incidental. It is important. Because as I've tried to show, it does reflect how we understand the very nature of God's created order of men and women, the nature of the church, and the rules that Christ has given us by which we are to be ruled, and the hermeneutic that we use when the Bible confronts us with teachings that go against contemporary cultural sensitivities and standards. Rosaria Butterfield has rightly noted this. She says, we show our submission to God not only by what we do, but also by the hermeneutic we use to interpret the Bible. If we use a hermeneutic that declares we will obey God unless he asks us to do things that do not correspond with our cultural wisdom, our personal experience, or our heartfelt desire, we are not honoring God. God created the world with boundaries and distinctions. The sun's not the moon, and the heavens are not the earth. No matter how much the sun might want to be the moon and believe it's capable of doing what the moon does, God created it to be the sun. The same is true of men and women. 
God created us with distinctions and boundaries, and he has done so for his glory and our flourishing. It's no dishonor or loss at all for men to live as men and women to live as women. In marriage, God calls the man to lead by making him the head of his wife and instructing him to serve her with sacrificial love. Similarly, in the church, God calls qualified men to lead by serving as elders and pastors or overseers. He also instructs who can teach, restricts who can teach his word in the worship gatherings of the church. In language that is unambiguous, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, let's be honest. The question on women preachers is not something that God's word is unclear about. What God says is not unclear. It's just unpopular. My fear is that the reason that this is a debated issue among us today is because the world has been more effective in discipling believers in its ways than the church has been in discipling believers in the ways of God given in the word. If we give up what God has to say about preaching in the church being the exclusive responsibility of men, then we cannot, with any hermeneutical consistency, limit the work of pastors to men. The interpretive approach that allows for the former demands that we allow for the latter. Furthermore, once we legitimize a hermeneutic that uses cultural context to dismiss principles that God has embedded in the created order, then we must be prepared to see other culturally offensive biblical standards rejected. Again, listen to Rosaria Butterfield. Today, the raging issue is not feminism, but sexuality, and especially homosexuality and gay marriage. I think these two issues, feminism and sexuality, are intimately linked as, opposed, and, and as imposing a feminist worldview on gender roles in order to reject them. This is the gateway to imposing a gay-affirming worldview on biblical sexuality in order to reject it. Biblical gender roles and biblical marriage go together. I agree with the warnings of Russell Moore that he issued back in 2005. The hermeneutical moves necessary to justify evangelical feminism cannot sustain the kind of confessional orthodoxy represented by the first generation of the Council of Biblical Equality. As the movement explores more fully the theological presuppositions that make biblical equality possible, we should expect to see more and more of a distance from evangelical orthodoxy on matters of God, Christ, salvation, and biblical revelation. Thank you, Dr. Askell. Would you please thank these two gentlemen? I want to introduce two folks to you. One that is uh, representing uh, with, uh, uh, with Pastor McKissick. This is Sherry Clauda, and she is the Associate Professor of Bible and Semitic Languages at Taylor University, and she will be here uh, to be able to ask the questions of Dr. Askell. And then as well, we have Jared Longshore, who is the Associate Pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and as well with the Sword and Trowel uh, broadcast that many of you are familiar with. And we want to go ahead and lead off then uh, with Ms. Cloud, Mrs. Clauda going ahead and asking Dr. Askell. We have three questions from each, and you have one minute to respond for each participant. Okay. Um, Pastor Askell, um, these two questions are related, so I'm going to go ahead and ask both of them, and you can answer them probably in the one moment. Um, the first is... Is it a sin for a man to watch, listen, and learn from a woman teaching the Bible? 
at all times, in all places? What if it is not the preaching time in church or at a denominational conference? And similar question, does 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14 apply to women gifted in preaching outside the gathering of the local church? Specifically, can women preach the word at conferences with men present? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Is it a sin for men, men to listen? Not Certainly not to listen to women teach uh, in every set, uh, circumstance. I would not say that. Um, can men learn from women who take God's word and explain it? Yeah, I think absolutely. We see examples of that in Scripture. Aquila and Priscilla, uh, Priscilla named first at times, to talk about how they taught and instructed Apollos. And so there's a general type of responsibility that all Christians have to teach one another and that doesn't have any kind of exclusivity to it. The, the text in 1 Timothy is in the context of Paul giving instructions about what he wants done in every place in the, the gathering of God's people, in the house churches. And so I see this passage limited to those, that's this Lord's Day gathering. That's why we limited this discussion to that. Um, the other issues, I think it has implications beyond that. But what about conferences? I mean, you hear Johnny Erickson Tata or Elizabeth Elliott teach. You could learn something. Okay, and for Pastor McKissick. Pastor McKissick. Yes, sir. Um, You've argued prophecy equates to preaching. When Isaiah prophesied or preached, his words were new and inerrant divine revelation. In your view, when a woman preaches today, are her words like Isaiah's new inerrant divine revelation? Absolutely not. They are like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, they're for comfort, consolation, they're for edification, and I believe he said they're for exhortational encouragement. That's how New Testament gift of prophecy was conducted. He says, uh, speak prophesy is the highest gift, he said, and people understand what you said, they may come to know the Lord. So there's an evangelistic component to it. Uh, later he talks about people learning why prophetic speech was going on. So there's something you learn. I just got a hold of E. Earl Ellis' book two or three days ago, and I'm just eating it up, but it amazes me how he unpacks prophecy. I don't recall him saying he equates it to preaching, but the way he defines prophecy throughout the book would be very similar preaching. So, no, I, I don't accept what the Isaiah verse Time. is. Yes. Okay. And for Pastor Askell, next question. Okay, Pastor, um, another question here. If men are the head of women and have authority over them by God's design at creation, is it, is it God's intention for men to be eternally the head over women and women eternally submissive to men? If not, why not? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that I thought about uh, what the relationship will be because Jesus says, you know, that there's not going to be giving in marriage in heaven. Um, so obviously that dimension of maleness, femaleness, and uh, coming together is going to be absent in the new heavens and new earth. So I don't know. I would just have to plead ignorance as to how that relationship between men and women is going to be manifested in eternity. One thing I'm absolutely certain about is Dwight and I are going to agree. 
Yeah. <laughs> I would agree with that. <laughs> By the way, one of the very first people ever reached out a hand of friendship to me, and I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know how he knew I existed, but he invited me. Tom Asko, and I will never forget that, and, and Tom Buck, I don't know if he's in the audience now or not, but those two men, we fight a lot. We, we both fight. I think we just like golf game. We enjoy fights. <laughs> but those men have genuinely, people have asked me, how do you get along with those fellas like those fellas? Because they love God. They love God's word. They love me. We just have disagreements. All right. Okay, and next question for Pastor McKissick. Pastor McKissick, uh, you claim that Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 was not saying that women should remain silent in the churches in general, but that they cannot speak to bind the prophetic word. But if a woman speaks prophecy today, in your view, is that not binding? How do you reconcile these things? Absolutely not. I mean, well, the command about women being silent is on the heels of tongues, interpretation, tongues interpreted being prophecy. He said the spirit of the prophet subject to the prophets. Only that two or three uh, speak and this must be interpreted. He's laying out some order and guidelines how this is to be done in a local church where there was a lot of disorder. Ultimately, if a lady or a man for that matter says, Lord says everybody sell their house and move to Russia in August. Somebody got to decide if, is, that, is that a binding prophecy? There was no canon of scripture in place. That, right? Halder was one of the first people who legitimized the canon of scripture. That's interesting, a woman. But um, so absolutely not. He said, when the shot is called as to whether or not the prophetic words are to be binding upon the congregation, there's like a resolution in SBC. We all know it's not binding. Time. All right. <laughs> Question for Dr. Asper. A, a woman wasn't binding either. <laughs> oh, I'm about to sound. <laughs> okay, Pastor Asko, final question. Um, as far as you can tell, is what Beth Moore and other women do in exercising their teaching gifts a violation of the Baptist faith and message? Yeah. Well, I think the Baptist faith and message is just, is, is not... Uh, as strong as it could be on this. And there's a historical reason for that. So I'm not sure that that's, I would have to say no, I don't think that they are uh, violating the Baptist faith and message the way it's stated, because it says the role of the pastor, I think is the actual language that is used there. And the, the difficulty is that the Baptist faith and message separates the role of the pastor from the function of the pastor. And so it doesn't specifically say that the function of the pastor is limited to men, but it says the role or the office of the pastor is limited to men. And um, so that's kind of the part of the question I was having with Dwight. Why would we be satisfied to let someone function, do what pastors do, when they are not qualified, or we wouldn't then go and have them serve in the office of the pastor? I would say because I don't think they're qualified to do that from the Bible. Not, not personally, but from the Bible. And last question for Pastor McKissick. Pastor McKissick. Yes. If a woman says that she is genuinely called by God to be a senior pastor, and say even she's commissioned by her present senior pastor to serve as a senior pastor, would you agree that she could do so and not be an error? If you think she is an error, 
how you would how would you tell her that she's not to be a senior pastor? Oh, I don't see it as my personal responsibility to police her or tell her she's uh, in error. I dislike the uh, topic of a message. Uh, gentleman, I think Bill Johnson said, what, do, what should we do with Beth Moore? You, they, she don't belong to you. It's not your job to do anything with Beth Moore. It wouldn't be my job to go and tell an autonomous church uh, how to handle a woman functioning in that capacity. Exegetically, I'm not there. I, 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 I just, uh, I'm not there. But emotionally, I am not going to interfere with a local church and the decision they make about, about that. So that's, I would handle it by minding my own business. Thank you. And would you please thank both of these two gentlemen for this afternoon's debate. Oh, thank you, Lord.